There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. Those of you that are going to watch this recording um, after it's over, after the study's over. We just got done praying and we're in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. Paul goes through a number of ifs in this chapter uh, because some in that church were preaching bad doctrine, that resurrection, physical resurrection was not really possible. And so he goes through the, if there's no resurrection in verse 13, it continues that whole section is, if uh, there's no resurrection, what the results would be. I want to quickly look at that and turn it on its head. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, let's see. But if it is preached, verse 12, that Christ has been raised from the has that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can you, some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. But I want to turn this on its head and show you there is resurrection from the dead. We believe, don't we? Christ has been raised. I want to look at it from the positive side. Verse 14, uh, if Jesus hadn't been raised, our preaching would be useless, and so would our faith, but our, the preaching is effective, isn't it? Because of the Holy Spirit and our faith is as well. We're saved by our faith in Christ. And the resurrection is every bit as important as the crucifixion. He paid for our sins on the cross, but the resurrection is the receipt. It is God showing that the sacrifice was accepted. And if he rose, we will rise. That's what he's about to say. Look at verse 15. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses. In other words, if there's no resurrection, we'd be false witnesses. But we are the true witnesses of the truth about God in all the world to the exclusion of every other world religion and certainly every other cult and philosophy. We've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. I'm still in verse 15. But if he didn't raise him from the then the dead are not raised, but they are. Verse 16, if the dead aren't raised, Christ hasn't been raised either. We already said that. He has been. Verse 17, your faith would be futile, but it's not. Your faith is what is saving you and saves you. Um, let's see. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. We know that those who believed who have already died, that's what he means by fallen asleep, we will see them again, the grand reunion. Um, and if only for this life, verse 19, we have hope, we're to be pitied more than all men. But the truth is to turn that on its head, the ones that are to be pitied are the ones that don't have faith. They're going to die in their sins. Um, so verse 20 uh, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. We talked about first fruits last week. For since death came through a man, he's talking about Adam. He's going to make a comparison between Adam and Jesus in a second. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, the second Adam, Jesus. 4, 22, in Adam all die. So in Christ all will be made alive. Do you know that if Adam and Eve had not sinned on the cross, we would all be living forever and they would have as well. If that makes you mad at them, remember that every time you sin, you ratify his decision to rebel against God. But in Adam, that's why everybody can get sick and die and be injured. And that's why you have to lock your car and your doors. But in Christ, all will be made alive. But then he gives the order in verse 23, but each in his own turn, Christ 
first, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. So there's an order in that verse, each in his own turn or in order. That's a military term. Jesus outranks us. So of course he would have to be the first one to be resurrected. We said last week or the week before, I think, that many have the mistaken idea that Jesus wasn't the first to rise from the dead because you can think of Lazarus, you can think of um, the widow of Nain's son. There's other people in the Old Testament that get raised from the dead. Aren't they first, not Jesus? Answer, no, they were resuscitated. Different. They were dead. They're alive now. They were alive for a while, and then they died again. Imagine that, to die twice. Jesus is the first one who rose from the dead. Once we rise, we will never die again. That's what he's going to talk about shortly. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Wow, that was a good one. Those of you on Zooms, so I know you're awake, wave or say amen. I see the thumbs up. I see an amen sign there. Beautiful. All right. Let's see. So um, verse later on in this chapter, and we might not get to it tonight. We might get to it next week. He's going to talk about the what of resurrection, the how, even the how, and then eventually the when. But in this part we're in right now, there's a hint about the when. What do you mean the when? The when of resurrection. We are resurrected when Christ returns. Are you saying you know the day or the hour? No. No man knows the day or the hour. But the general time and maybe a specific day without naming the day i'll show you is in this passage each in his own turn are going to rise up first christ the first fruits verse 23 then when he comes do you see that that's the parousia it's a greek word it means the visual coming of his presence it's not an invisible coming like the jehovah's witnesses thought in 1914 It's not a secret coming. It's when he comes, the parousia, the visible coming. So this is commonly referred to, and it's really going to be discussed right around verse 50 and afterwards as the rapture. How many have heard of the rapture of the church? Okay. It's the point at which Jesus comes and two sets of people get resurrected. Those that have died that were believers get resurrected first. Right out of their graves, they come with glorified bodies. This I'm getting ahead of myself because this is later in the chapter. And then those who happen to be alive when he comes are changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, from a body that can get sick and injured and feel pain to a glorified body. We'll talk more about the what of what kind of body as well in this chapter with some analogies. But... I'm just going to hint at the resurrection rapture thing here in verse 23 and 24. When he comes, those who belong to him, that's when we get changed. You may know a lot of Christians, a little more than a third of pastors, believe that the rapture occurs before a seven-year tribulation. Before Antichrist comes on the scene, then we raptured out. And then there's a seven-year tribulation, and then Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. Look at verse 23 again. When he comes, that's when we get resurrected. Verse 24 gives you a time marker. Do you see it? And then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
Verse 24, then there will be a seven-year tribulation. Do you see that? No, you don't. What does it say? Then the end will come. Some people believe, as I do, that the rapture occurs at the second coming at the end of the tribulation. Paul's going to talk more about this later in the chapter. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but just wanted to throw that in there. Then the end will come. Not a seven-year tribulation. The end. Sounds like it comes after the tribulation. I'll show you why Jesus, John, and Paul will all agree on the timing later. Um, then the end will come when he, that's Jesus, verse 24, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. That's got to happen first. Um, so his eternal purpose in history, God was, was to save people through the coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes back, Jesus hands the kingdom, which is his, back to his father. It can never be said Jesus is greater than the father. In fact, Jesus says just the opposite in the Gospel of John. The father is greater than I. You say, wait, I thought you believed in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three that are the one God. I do. Well, then aren't they co-equal in nature? They are. Are they equal in role? No. Just as a man and a woman who are married are equal in nature, in role in the Bible, the man is to be the leader of this family. By the way, especially the spiritual leader of the family. So, verse, back to verse 24. He, Jesus, hands the kingdom back to God the Father after he's done something. He destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. What's that? On planet Earth, God is first of all, is sovereign. He's in control. God never watches what happens on the news like you and me and says, oh man, did you see that? He's never surprised, right? Things that, he, that happen are either allowed by him or more likely even caused by him, um, but allowed as well. So in the interim between the coming of Christ, or even you could say the creation, the fall of man, to the end, God has allowed some people and nations to have some power. Okay? Emperors, kings, presidents, congressmen, mayors, governors, policemen have power you don't have. Satan has been allowed to have some power. All of that power, listen, including the government, including Satan, is limited by God. God has Satan on a short leash. It might not look like it, but he does. There are some things he can't do. Satan can't do. Many, in fact. Jesus says to Peter, do you remember? He's, you're going to be tempted, Pete. Satan has asked, did you hear that? Asked permission to sift you like wheat. And Jesus lets him tempt Peter, and Peter denies Jesus three times. Not good. But does Peter fall off the wagon and never becomes a Christian again? Oh no, he's restored by Jesus, isn't he? That's God, Christ, limiting Satan's power. He limits government's power and governments come and they go, don't they? I hope we're not seeing the, begin, the beginning of the decline of the American empire. 
but it kind of feels like it sometimes to me. Okay, that's enough of that. But anyway, um, Jesus takes his rightful place, but when he returns, the ultimate human power has been in control on planet Earth, the Antichrist, which is a man who finally does what no man has ever done, become king of the whole world. He rules the whole world, and he's evil. He's empowered by and dwelt by Satan. Jesus overthrows him, every other government, all the demons. Satan is judged when he returns. All the power people have all goes back into the hands where it belongs, Christ, who reigns for a thousand years after he returns. We did that in Revelation for quite a while, didn't we? Um, that's why he's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? First um, Timothy 6.15, uh, Jesus is called the blessed and only ruler. Really, he's the only one. Kings come and kings go, presidents do as well. Um, let's see, we already talked about that. So all sin, every loose end, and this is all the whole book of Revelation again, right? Every loose end on planet Earth is dealt with finally and fairly when Christ returns. All sin is judged. One of two ways. Not a believer. Let's say this person here, Harold, is not a believer. All sin judged on Harold himself. He will pay, right? Outer darkness, hell. Or are you a believer? Yes, but what about all my sin? Jesus already paid on the cross. No other way for sin to be paid for. On the cross, Jesus paid for you. By faith, you believe. He died for your sins, rose from the dead. No, no pen, penalty for sin for you. All put on him. Not a believer, the worst possible thing. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. So go back to the text. The end will come. He'll hand the kingdom back over to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And that's talking about Revelation 21 and 22, the eternal state. Not the t Revelation 20 is the thousand-year millennium during which Christ reigns on planet Earth. Finally, a righteous government on uh, planet Earth for a thousand years. Then the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth come down. The earth and the heavens are recreated. We live on a recreated earth that is like a heaven on earth with God the Father, Father and with Jesus Christ. If you want to read a travel brochure, don't do it now, but it's Revelation 21 and 22. Your future home. Verse 25. For he, that's Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So that thousand-year reign is what he's talking about after the second coming on earth. Now listen, there's a sense in which some theologians say he is, Jesus is, now reigning in heaven, right? Is he reigning on the earth? Some would say, yes, he's sovereign, he's reigning, <clears throat> But some say that Satan is already bound, and we're in the thousand-year millennium now, because they say a thousand years is symbolic. It's not a real length of time. If Satan is bound, he sure is getting loose a lot, right? I, I, just looking at the world, I go, it doesn't look like Satan's bound to me. Um, so 
Let's see. Let's talk about enemies now, shall we? He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Who are the enemies of Christ? And by the way, that's the one person you don't want to have as your, to be their enemy, right? Because he's the strongest entity there is, God, right? All unbelievers are the enemies of Christ. I was an enemy of Christ before I came to Christ. So were you. We were, Romans talks about this. <clears throat> In fact, it says the astounding thing that while we were enemies, sinners, that's, what, that's when he died for me and you. It's astounding to me. Who else? All uh, ungodly education and government and business dealings, all, all demons, which are fallen angels, Satan himself, all the enemies will be judged. He must reign 25 until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Do you see that there? This is an Old Testament term for kings would come and they would sit up high on a throne, but on a platform so that anybody that came that was captured that was their enemy would have to bow down way below their feet. <clears throat> it's a euphemism or a symbolic way of saying, <clears throat> excuse me, that somebody is God's enemy. They are placed under his feet. He's conquered them completely. Okay. Um, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed, you might be surprised, is not a person. It's death itself. That's an enemy. It is something that we have grown used to, haven't we, on planet Earth? But it is foreign to what God wanted. There was no death in the Garden of Eden until Adam and Eve sinned. So death is an enemy. Do you remember the whole story of Lazarus in the tomb? <clears throat> Lazarus is a close friend of Christ, and he dies, and Jesus is the news is brought to Jesus. Your friend Lazarus has died. Do you remember the story? Um, it's John 11, I believe. Yeah. It's an interesting story. I, I'm tempted to go there, but we'll spend all night there because there's so much going on there. Jesus does an amazing thing. He stays away. First, he hears Lazarus is sick. Do you remember? And Jesus stays away. And then he tells them, all right, now it's time to go. But I want to warn you, he tells the disciples, he's dead. But I'm going there to wake him up. He goes there, and the interesting scene is, uh, let's turn there. We don't have to do the whole thing, but we'll do John 11, 33. John 11, easy to find about four books, three books to the left. John 11, look at verse uh, 33. <clears throat> Oh, let's see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's skip that. Okay, 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he, Jesus, was troubled or deeply moved in spirit. Do you see that? Interesting. <clears throat> Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord. Verse 35, Jesus wept, troubled in spirit, um, deeply moved, wept. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't Jesus know <clears throat> within five or 10 minutes, he's going to raise him from the dead and the death will have ceased for Lazarus, at least for a time. Of course he knows. 
Why is he crying? Because he's troubled, not that Lazarus is dead. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus at death itself. It's unnatural. We're supposed to live forever. In the book of Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 3, it says, this is an interesting verse, God has placed in all humans' hearts. He set eternity in their hearts. Meaning everybody has an idea that there must be something after death, right? That we, we find it unusual. When someone dies that you love, you cry because you're going to miss them. It's sad. Maybe they suffered. First Corinthians is going to say in this chapter, oh, death, where is your sting? Because if resurrection is true and the person you loved is a Christian and so are you and they died, it's a temporary separation. It's beautiful. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope of that. So death is an enemy personified here that's someday going to be conquered and displaced destroyed completely. <clears throat> Therefore, listen, uh, death is an enemy you should not fear. If you're afraid of dying, then you don't understand that your faith makes your death an awesome, glorious resurrection, future resurrection, but an immediate glorification in heaven with God. We talked about that last week. Yeah, 311 for Ecclesiastes. He's placed eternity in our hearts. Um, <clears throat> turn, since you're in John, go to Matthew chapter 27. I know we did this before, but it's so unusual. I want to do it again. Go to John, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 27. Jesus dies on the cross, verse 50. Do <clears throat> you see it there? Gave up his spirit. And a number of things happen. A little flurry of miracles. Jesus, there have already been, by the way, some miracles. Remember? Supernatural darkness in the middle of the day, and there was no eclipse. Jesus dies at verse 51 of Matthew 27. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in, torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. Quick explanation of that before we move on. In the temple, there was the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. You were considering becoming a Jew, you could come that far. Then there was the holy place where people worshiped and heard the teaching of God's word. Then, I'm going to make it behind me, there was a room about the size of a bedroom that no one could go in. It's where the presence of God dwelt, the holy of holies, or the most holy place. In that little room, God gives the dimensions in the Old Testament, was the Ark of the Covenant, which had the Ten Commandments in it, Aaron's rod that had budded. This is all Old Testament stuff. The mercy seat where the high priest was the only one who could go in there, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would sprinkle the blood of the Lamb there symbolically, on the mercy seat for uh, symbolically saying there's been a sacrifice without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness of sins. Um, forgive my people. No one could go in there. Why? Because sin separates us. And even the Old Testament sacrifices, which were a covering temporarily. How do you know temporarily, Joe? Because a year later on Passover, guess what happens again? Another sacrifice, a bunch of lambs 
Josephus writes that one Passover they counted and there was more than 250,000 lambs sacrificed in Jerusalem for Passover. So nobody can go in there. We're separated from the presence of God because of sin. Josephus writes that the Jews would add to the thickness of that curtain regularly to where at the time Josephus writes after Christ is uh, risen, that it's the thickness of a man's hand this way, okay? Josephus writes that it was so thick that if you tied it to two teams of horses and whipped them in other directions, they might try to run and they could never tear the curtain apart. An insurmountable boundary between men and God. And when Jesus dies, symbolically, God takes that curtain from the top to the bottom and goes like this. I would love to talk to whoever was high priest that year when he heard, yeah, you know the curtain? As soon as that dude died that said he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the curtain was torn in half. What does that sound like? It sounds like now there's access to God because there's been a, a lamb sacrifice, the ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, why are we there, Joe? We're still going. The curtain was torn in two from the top, meaning God did it, to the bottom. Verse 52 is the weirdest verse in the Gospel of Matthew. The tombs broke open, and many of the bodies, uh, I'm sorry, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Can you imagine? We just buried Aunt Sarah two weeks ago, and here she comes. <laughs> I, this is the only place this occurs in the Bible. Does that mean she died again? Probably. Or that she went to heaven with Jesus when he ascended? Maybe. It's odd, isn't it? Can you imagine the shocked faces? Yeah, a weird one. Okay, one of the consequences. Death destroyed. It's a hint that... In the future, there will be a rapture when that's not going to happen here and there in Jerusalem. It's going to happen all over the world. I personally hope, I know this sounds weird, I hope I'm at a cemetery when Jesus returns. Just to see the, wow, can you imagine? All these bodies rising, it'll probably give me a heart attack and then I'll die. Okay, let's move on. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. Zoom, you still awake, people? couple... There's always one or two of those, believe me. Okay, um, back to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he must reign until he's put all the enemies under his feet, verse 15. Uh, sorry, 25. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, 26. For he has put everything under his feet, verse 27 says, but when it says everything has been put under him, Jesus, it's clear this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. That may sound like legal jargon. What that's saying is, it's true that all enemies, everything is put under Jesus's feet. He's sovereign and he reigns. Paul just wants to put an asterisk there and say, he doesn't reign over God the Father. It's interesting though, that in the Gospel of John, God the Father glorifies Jesus, just as Jesus glorifies the Father. In any case, God the Father is in the Godhead, the one with the role of absolute leadership. Doesn't mean inferiority, it's a role thing. 
Uh, yeah. Verse 28. Oh, no, we already did that one. Uh, oh, no, we didn't. When he has done this, verse 28, then the son himself will be made subject to or placed under the rule of him, God the Father, who put everything under him so that God may be all and in all. This is what we said earlier, the absolute tying up of every loose end. Who else should reign for all eternity except God the Father? With the Lord Jesus, by the way. He sits on the throne with him together. Um, verse 30, no, verse 29, sorry. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Okay, if you don't have questions about that verse, you're not paying attention. This is the weirdest verse in the book of 1 Corinthians. I'll just tell you right now. Um, John MacArthur in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 15 says about this verse that there are more than 40 different interpretations of this verse. Okay, it's a, it's a puzzler. Okay, um, I'll tell you what the majority view is, and then I'll give you a minority view that makes some sense, but I think the majority view is right, and it might surprise you. The majority view of verse 29 is proxy or vicarious baptism. You say, what? This is a pagan practice. The uh, Aleutian mystery religion did this. It was a pagan religion. And uh, Eleusis is a town very close to Corinth. It's possible that paganism crept into the church like all the other pagan stuff in this troubled church of First Corinthians, of, of the Corinth, Corinthian church. Okay, what do you mean by proxy or vicarious baptism? This is pretty crazy. It means that if I remember, my great-grandmother wasn't a Christian. So I'm going to get baptized, and that'll save her. Is that taught anywhere else in the whole Bible? No. Is it true? No. It's a heresy. But the pagans did it. They thought they had salvation with their pagan gods and that they could get baptized for people who died, who didn't believe. My sister, let's just say, I don't have a sister, but if I did, she didn't believe, and I was part of this pagan cult, I could get baptized with water, and it would save her. Okay. So if that pagan practice is what this is talking about, that had crept into the church, and there were some people, maybe even in the Corinthian church, that thought they could do this. You all know, or some of you know, the Mormons believe this. Mormons get baptized for dead people all the time, and they believe it saves them. Somebody that didn't ever believe in Jesus, if a Mormon gets baptized for them, Mormons believe he's in. If you've read your Bible, you know salvation, listen, is personal. By that I mean if she's going to come to Christ, she has to make that decision, having been drawn by the Holy Spirit, convinced of Jesus' deity and resurrection and death on the cross, 
convinced the Bible's the word of God, gets on her knees, confesses she's a sinner, and she receives Jesus Christ. Listen, you can witness to her, you can beg her, you can yell at her if you want, but there's nothing you can do to save her until she makes that decision. If she has children, that does not save them. They got to be saved. Have you ever heard the saying, God has no grandchildren? Well, I'm saved because my parents were saved. No, no, you have to make your own decision. Ken had a question back there, nice and loud, and try to do it quickly because the Zoom people can't hear you. Is this the verse Mormon refers to? Correct. But there's more in there. They have, besides the Bible, they have Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Book of Mormon, which, by the way, all three contradict each other. And it's an amazing thing. But anyway, yes, this is the verse they go to. Um, parenthesis, there's a principle in Christianity. We talked about it about three weeks, four weeks ago here, three or four weeks ago. And it's this, by two or three witnesses shall every matter be established. That's back from Deuteronomy, old, way old, 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 Old Testament. Okay, what's your point? That referred to when somebody accused, we think you did the murder, Joe, and we're going to have a trial. You had to have two or three witnesses. Not one person that said it, two or three witnesses. But it's also true, listen, for the Bible. What do you mean? I mean, there's no one verse that Jesus died for our sins. Not one. There's a bunch. Many witnesses say that. There's no one person that says Jesus rose from the dead. There's a bunch of people that say that. Everything's established by two or three witnesses. So if you have a doctrine like this, where this is the only place in the Bible it appears, Paul is simply mentioning that some people are doing that. He's not condoning it. Much like God mentions in the Old Testament <clears throat> that there's slavery, it doesn't mean God's stamping his approval on it. He's just reporting there's slavery. Okay, look at the verse again. This is another argument for the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? In other words, why are they baptizing people from the dead if there's no resurrection? Even they, pagans, sense there is a resurrection. They're going about it the wrong way, baptizing someone. It's kind of a ridiculous thing, isn't it? It means that a person could live the worst life imaginable, the most sinful Osama bin Laden, you know, life, and live and die that way and never believe in Jesus. And then Doreen could get baptized for the dude and he's in heaven. Thank you so much. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? No, Doreen's going, I'm not doing it. She's staying dry. Good for you. Um, okay, so <clears throat> why would they do that if there's no resurrection from the dead? He's saying, if they're gone forever anyway, why are you even bothering? Uh, let's see. The other view that makes some sense, but I do believe that's what's happening. There's some people that have preached that doctrine in the Corinthian church from the pagans. It's not part of the Bible. It's not God's rule. The Bible teaches that baptism, by the way, you know, offends some, possibly some Catholics and Lutherans. Baptism is not for babies. It's not. It's not biblical. Believe with all your heart and be baptized. It's in the book of Acts more than once. You believe first. 
God bless this little baby. We can dedicate him, the parents, to the Lord and the grandparents and the uncles and aunts and the friends. But to baptize him, the baby, do you believe? Goo goo gaga does not cut it, right? He doesn't believe yet. It's not his fault. He's not of age where he could understand the gospel. Um, so um, the other view is the word, go back to verse 29, what will do, those do who are baptized, NIV has, for the dead. You see, for there, F-O-R. It's the word in Greek, it looks like hooper, H-U-P-E-R. Hooper is actually how you say it, okay? That word is one of those words in Greek that has, you can translate it nine different ways. One of the words that it's translated in English some places is the word because of, baptized because of the dead. So some scholars think, and the 40 plus views, one of them that's fairly common, but not as common as the one I just told you is this, that some people witness the, life's, the lives of this guy over here, we'll call him Horatio, who was a great Christian man, older man, and some of us saw the way he lived and the, the love and the generosity and how Jesus had really changed him, and then he died. And some of us, maybe even at his memorial, decided this Jesus thing is real. The proof is, look at how his life was. Because of Horatio's, stupid name, Christian life that was so exemplary and such a good witness, I think I'm going to get baptized because of him because of his witness, even though he's passed on. I think it's a stretch to tell you the truth. I think it's um, proxy vicarious baptism, somebody getting baptized for somebody else, thinking that's going to save him. The real reason that doesn't work, besides the fact we said um, baptism is a personal thing, just as salvation is a personal decision. I can't decide for her, you can't decide for her, or anybody else. You decide in your mind to follow Christ. Amen? The other reason it makes no sense is your own baptism didn't save you. You were already saved. You've already believed. It's the first act of obedience. Receive, believe, and be baptized. But the baptism doesn't save you. The thief on the cross believed. You remember? Because of what he said. He gives an encapsulated uh, description of Christianity that is mind-blowing for a guy dying on a cross. Um, he's, he says about Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. He knows he's sinless. He turns to Jesus, who is bloody, swollen, and bleeding out, and says to this, what looks like a fellow criminal, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Meaning he knows this guy's a king. He's going to have a kingdom. He's not going to die here, and that's the end of him. Jesus says to him, because you haven't been baptized, you're out of luck, dude. Is that what he says? If you could get some water up here. No, he says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. It's the only person in all of Jesus's ministry that he tells, dude, you're saved. It's an amazing thing. No baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Okay, verse 30. We still have some time before our two-minute break, and some of you can't wait for that, can you? Um, verse 30. 
As for us, uh, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Okay, he's about to explain that he had a pretty cushy life beforehand. He was a Pharisee, um, a Jewish leader, okay? And was really never in any danger. He becomes a Christian and ends up getting whipped and beaten and arrested time and time again and thrown out of town and threatened. In the book of Acts, there's a time when 40 men make a vow that they will not eat or drink until they kill Paul. You remember that in the book of Acts? People hated this guy because he came to Christ, okay? And so he's saying, um, as for us, meaning the apostles, 11 of the 12 apostles die martyrs' deaths. Why are we, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He's explaining, if there's no resurrection, would I let myself be in this much danger? I had a cushy life before. I just go back to that life and live a quiet life. He's out there getting persecuted, danger of being killed. Eventually, he's arrested a second time, sent to Rome, and Nero has him decapitated, guillotine, head chopped off for the gospel. I'm confident he had an opportunity to say, okay, wait, time out. It's all a hoax. We made it up. Just let me go. And they probably would have let him go. He said, go ahead. I know who, who I have believed in, and I'm convinced he, he's able to hold in his hand what I've entrusted to him my whole life. Why would we endanger ourselves every hour, live that way, if there's no resurrection? Verse 31, I die daily every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus. Um, he glories over them because he planted the church in Corinth, and he considers them like his kids, the Christians that in, are there in Corinth. He led them to Christ, many of them. Um, so he dies daily. He doesn't mean the other way Christians talk about dying daily, which is you die to yourself and your desires. I want alcohol or drugs or stealing or sex or greed or whatever I want, or I want revenge and I'm going to die. That part of me is going to die. That's true in Christianity. It's not what he means here. He's talking about dying daily, being in, the, in, the, in danger of dying because of the gospel. Um, his life's always on the line. Look at verse 32. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for mere human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's party. Might as well. Nothing else to do. In Ephesus, there was a riot, and he fought wild beasts. Do you mean animals, Joe? No, I mean men that were so vicious to him. It was a, a mob violence kind of a thing, like wild beasts kind of thing. He lives his life all out for the gospel, constantly in danger of being beaten, killed, imprisoned, um, with the attitude that I'm so sure this is true. I'm just passing through. Contrast that with some jihadi Muslims who are also sure of their religion, that Muhammad will we reward them if they blow themselves up and kill a bunch of you. Is that Christianity? No. He's in danger of dying. He doesn't want to kill anybody. He wants to bring people to 
new life. Amen. Let's take our two-minute break right now and and, uh, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. They're waiting to see if you'll say hello, those of you that are here. And those of you on Zoom, I'll be right back in two minutes. Don't go away. Whoops. Find your seats, if you will, those of you that are here. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are still in 1 Corinthians 15, discussing these unusual um, scriptures. Find your seats back there, if you will. Um, Okay, so um, what he's talking about in verse 32 is uh, what has he gained if he's fighting all these wild beasts for nothing, if there's no resurrection? And then he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is the philosophy of the world, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. You ever heard that one? You know what? He who dies with the most toys is still dead. Amen? And if he loves those toys too much, he's really in trouble. Um, Let's see. Uh, Yeah, we talked about that. Um, What he's saying here is that the eat, drink, and tomorrow we die kind of thing. If there's no judgment in this life, you might as well just party it up because this is it. There was a song in the 60s, I think by Peggy Lee, called Is That All There Is? Is that all there is? This it? If this is it, let's face it, it's a beautiful planet that that people mess up, right? Including me, including you. But if this is all there is, and you get to live 70, 80, 90 years, maybe 100 if you really keep going, yes, some of you. Make it 105, okay. I told you my aunt is 104 in New York, 104 years old. If this is all there is, then there's no purpose to anything. Atheists believe that people die and rot in the ground, and that's the end of that person forever. Like I've told you, the Bible teaches that the human spirit is eternal, and even unbelievers will be raised to be judged. uh, We talked about that last week. Um, The human spirit is eternal. Okay, Um, let's see. Now he's going to quote another... um, another sort of a um, proverbial or proverb type saying of verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Now that concept is hinted at or spoken of a little bit in Proverbs and elsewhere in the Bible. Bad company corrupts good character. You see that there? That is actually from a comedy play by a guy named Menander um, who lived in 342 to 290 BC. The comedy is called T-H-A-I-S, Thais or, or Thais maybe. Um, in any case, what does it mean? It means if you hang around with people um, who are sinners, who are bad teachers, It's going to corrupt your good morals and your good character. This Corinthian church is allowing people into the church. What's the the context again? What are we talking about? Some have said there's no resurrection, and they've taught it in church. Okay? The Sadducees, you may remember, 
that were around the other wing of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they believed in no resurrection, no supernatural, no angels, no demons, no devil, no resurrection. I don't know what the point of religion is if you don't believe in a resurrection. Let us, uh, let's see, do you know, bad company corrupts good character. In context, he's saying the bad company are the false teachers that are corrupting what you believe, making you question um, your faith kind of thing. Um, let's see. Yeah, they, they're rationalizing their sin as well. Um, so, and, and it's a very true thing, isn't it? Bad company corrupts good character. You, you, like me, when you came to Christ and Jesus really got a hold of you, for me, it was a fairly gradual process. You may have had to not hang around with some people that you used to hang around with, with whom you sinned, right? Whatever the case may be, you kind of didn't feel as comfortable. I didn't around those people anymore. They just want to get high or whatever. Like, eh, seems like a waste of time to me now. It didn't before. Now it does. Um, so bad teachers, influencers, your morals, your doctrine, and what have you. This is why Hebrews 10.25 says, listen, because I'll bet somebody listening to the sound of my voice on Zoom or here is going to feel a little pinch. Hebrews 10.25 says to Christians, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. Translation, go to church. Don't forsake meeting together with other believers. Zoom is great. And some of you live in other states on Zoom. Some of you live in the Bay Area, Southern California, Nevada, we mentioned. But some of you live five miles from here and you could be here. You don't have to be here, but go to church. It's important that you have good company to build up your morals and people that you agree with. We, Christianity, is a community. You're probably tired of hearing me say this, but the pronouns to a great extent in the Lord's Prayer are plural. Did you ever know this? Notice that? Our Father, not my Father, just me and Jesus, our community. Forgive us our debts. Um, give us this day our daily bread. Us. It's supposed to be a community. Um, okay. Um, yeah, all those sayings. Live for today. This is the worldly philosophy. Eat and drink because tomorrow we die. Go for all the gusto you can. Remember that beer ad? Because you only go around once in life. Remember that? That's kind of a strange thing. It's almost like saying, well, you know you're going to die, so you might as well drink it up. Um, how about this one? Worldly philosophy. If it feels good, do it. Wow. It's so anti-biblical, isn't it? Um, okay. Verse 34. Come back to your senses. This is a hard verse to translate. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. He says, uh, come back to your senses, awaken to righteousness. One translation has, arise from your stupidity. Kind of harsh, right? Stop sinning, repent, in other words. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Now, two ways to take that. 
Are there some in your family and circle of friends who are ignorant of God? I don't mean they've never heard God and never heard the word before. What does it mean? I mean, they don't know God. How do you know God from the word, right? The absolute perfect image of who and what God is, is Jesus Christ. You want to know what Christ, what God's character is like? Watch Jesus Christ. The mercy, the love, the grace, the patience he has with the disciples. I'm glad it, I wasn't the Messiah. I would have gotten rid of all 12 of them and picked 12 other guys and probably gotten rid of them too. Once you denied me, you're out, not Jesus. Patient, kind, loving. But he's saying, come back to your senses. Remember that you are a Christian. Listen, not for what you can get from the Lord, but what you can learn from him that will change you and then that you give away. Christianity is receiving vertically love from God. Yes, that's great. And then turning it out horizontally toward people that don't deserve it because you didn't. It's receiving forgiveness vertically from God and then forgiving people that have made you angry or that have hurt you Everything we receive, we're supposed to be giving out. He's saying, you've received also the knowledge of God, the gospel. Why aren't you giving it out? To your shame, he says, there are some who are ignorant of God. Go witness to him. That's what he's saying. Your friends, your family, what have you. Um, some commentators read this verse and say, there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Some think he's saying, in your church in the Corinthian church. I don't know that you could get that for sure out of this verse, but there's some who are ignorant of God. Now you all know, I've told you this before, you go to church, you're gonna be around a bunch of Christians, right? You'll also be around some unbelievers, right? Just because somebody's in a church doesn't make them a, a believer. There's people that have a said faith rather than a real true saving faith. So what? At least they're at the right place. They're sick spiritually, they're at the hospital the church. Amen. Um, so he's saying to their shame, stop sinning because, listen, you and I, our example, our witness is so damaged by our sinning that we're of no good use to God, right? If, I, if you're at a bar and you're drunk, and so am I, and I tell you, you should really come to church. Are you... <laughs> Are you, I'm pretty good at that. Are you going to believe me? Like, boy, Joe really has it together. He's as drunk. He might be drunker than I am. If I'm with drug addicts and I'm as stoned out of my mind as they are, man, you really should come to church, man. Is that a good witness? Come out from among them. Be different. In the Old Testament, I love this word, King James. God tells the Jews, I chose you to be a, wait for it, peculiar people. Not meaning weirdos, meaning different. We're supposed to be different. When we're sinning, that's why he says stop sinning. When we're sinning, we're not a good witness. Okay, verse 35. Now we get into the how and the what of resurrection. Because from a scientific physics standpoint, you got to admit, there's some questions here. Let's look at it. 35. But someone may ask, this is like a theoretical a question from a skeptic. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Right? 
because it's a little easier to believe it if Harold died yesterday, resurrection, still fresh in the grave. He just died. We put him in the grave. As opposed to Harold's grandmother died in 1941. She was a Christian. How? What kind of a body? That's a lot of years ago, right? Almost 100 years ago, 80 years ago. What kind of a body could she possibly have? Hasn't she just disintegrated? How could God ever put all those molecules back together of Aunt Sophie or Grandma Louise or whoever she was? Okay, so how are the dead raised? See question number one? Paul, I'm just going to tell you, doesn't answer that one. Oh, well, that's not good. Here's why. Because we couldn't, we couldn't fathom it with our little puny brains if we tried. But there's some hints, right? Well, somebody that died, let alone 1940, they died. Let's say the, let's say the Apostle Peter. He died in the first century, right? What about him? You think when Jesus returns, yes, God's going to, Peter's going to come out of the ground somewhere? Yes, I do. How? Come on. There would be, not, not only is his flesh gone, even the bones, there's maybe a little dust somewhere. Listen, how did God make Adam? Out of the dust of the earth. If God could create the universe by saying, let there be light and the sun appeared and the moon and the stars, and let there be trees and the fish and the... You really think he's going to have a trouble time getting Peter, all the molecules back together? You think he doesn't know every inch of that DNA? No sweat for God. So he's not going to answer the how as much as he's going to answer the what kind of body, with what kind of body will they come? Are you saying Peter and your parents, Joe, who died, you know, years ago, are going to rise up out of the grave in another flesh body the same way they were? And the answer is no. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the person that died and the person that rises, but the body is different. That's what this section is going to talk about with a bunch of analogies. He's going to talk about seeds. He's going to talk about um, different kinds of creation, flesh, and all that. Let's get into it. Okay. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Verse Oh, one more thing about 35. We talked about this last week and the week before, resurrection. I can understand so-and-so is put into the grave bodily. But what about people that got cremated? What about the guy that got eaten by a shark or blown up in a, an explosion or died in a fire or, you know, whatever, died at sea? What about those people? Again, how big is your God? You think God's going, how are we going to get Peter back? And so-and-so died at sea and a shark ate him and shared him with a, a, you know, a killer whale. And how are we going to all that? No sweat for God. Okay. Move on, Joe. That's gross. Okay, sorry. Verse 36. Oh, it's talking about me. How foolish. <laughs> what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Talking about seeds. You with me? You ever plant a seed? Think now. Human body. Louise, somebody's grandmother, died. What was she? Human being. The body is put into the grave, right? He's saying it's foolish to think that same body 
exactly the same as coming up. Number one, if it did and she comes to life again, she can still get sick, get injured, die, be murdered, be blown up again. He's going to say that the resurrection body, listen, is glorified and far superior. It's a higher level of existence. Let's start with seeds. You can get um, a zucchini seed, right? They're really small. Apple seeds from an apple core and corn and plant a bunch of different seeds. Does anybody here think if you plant a zucchini seed and water it and fertilize it with the right soil that a seed is going to come up? And you go, oh, there's a seed. No, it's something much more grandiose. It's a plant that will produce thousands of seeds and fruit or vegetables or whatever the case may be. That's the point. How foolish. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. He's saying by burying the seed, you're sort of doing a little mini burial there. Think of it that way. You got the picture? And the seed dies and becomes, some, becomes something much greater when it is uh, when it starts to grow. Jesus talks about this exact analogy, by the way. Um, uh, by the way, in Acts 26, Peter says to King, to King Agrippa, who, who, who sort of scoffs at the resurrection, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? In other words, if you know that he created the world and sustains everything, and you've ever looked at a microscope and seen what's in a drop of water, you really think God's going to have any problem? You and I would. Let's raise him from the dead. Okay, let's all really try. It ain't going to happen. God can do it like that. And by the way, it is an instantaneous miracle, we'll see next week probably, that around the world when Christ returns, it happens in the twinkling of an eye. That means really, really quickly. It's not a gradual thing like it is with a zucchini plant growing up out of the ground. Okay. Um, God does it miraculously is the answer to the question, how are the dead raised? That's like asking, well, how did God create the world? Explain that to me. Can you? You could say, well, I can read you the Genesis 1, 2 and show you that he spoke it into existence. Yes, but how? did it miraculously. How did Jesus rise from the dead? Some of these questions, that's why he says, how foolish or thou fool, King James 36. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. There has to be the death first and then uh, new life, if you will. Um, yeah, we talked about that. Okay. Um, what kind of a body I'm going to give you a little hint. Go to 1 John chapter 3. So way in the back of the Bible, go to Re easiest way to find 1 John is go to Revelation. Easy to find. And then take a bunch of lefts. There's short books. Jude, 3 John, 2 John. 1 John, right there. Written by the Apostle John. Chapter 3. Um, let's see. D verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be, you know, in the resurrection has not been yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, parousia, second coming, we shall, listen, be like him, for we shall see him as he 
is. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. There's the repentance, just as he is pure. But did you see that in verse 2? When he appears, we shall be like him. We'll see him as he is. We will be like him. What does that mean? What was Jesus? Human being. Fully God and fully man, I admit. But he was a human being. He could bleed. He could die. He could get sick. He could be injured. He could get tired and need to take a nap on a boat. Remember that? But when he rises out of the dead, we'll be, we will be like him. Okay, what about him? Was he the same person? Yes. He recognizes the disciples, right? At first they don't recognize him, and then they do. He's still got the scars on his hands and his feet and his side. Do you remember? With Thomas, go ahead, knock yourself out, put your finger in there. It's really me. He has flesh and bones in Luke 24. He eats fish. He says, handle me and see, I'm not a ghost. You can give me a hug if you want. So he's got a physical body. Okay, so he's the same. Wait, is he? The doors were locked and he just popped in. You ever watch Star Trek? He just beamed in. I'm kidding. He could go right through a locked door or right through walls. On the road to Emmaus, he's hanging with two disciples who are so disappointed that Jesus died and they don't know it's him. It says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He speaks with them. He gives them an Old Testament Bible study and then disappears. Luke 24. So it's the same Jesus, but in a glorified body, there are some differences. He is still in that body. The only man-made thing you're going to see when you get to heaven, man-made, are the scars. And you won't say, ew, you'll say, that's why I'm here. That's love, right? Okay, so um, the Mount of Transfiguration. Don't turn there, but Matthew 17. You can look at it later. Do you remember that? Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain with Jesus. I want the three of you, my leaders, come with me. We're going to have a little retreat. They go up on a mountain. Remember? Jesus goes kind of by himself over there, and they're watching. And all of a sudden, Moses, who's dead, and Elijah, who's dead, well, sort of, he was taken up, right, appear. And they're recognizable somehow. They know the guy on the left is Moses. Yeah, I know. And the other guy's Elijah. Wow. How did they know? I don't know. They don't have trading cards or anything like Moses. The resemblance is uncanny, but they know somehow it's Moses and Elijah. And those guys were in heaven and are still Moses and Elijah. Why does that occur? Because Moses represents the law, the Old Testament, right? The law. And Elijah represents the greatest of the prophets. The Jews referred to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. Peter sees Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and you know Peter puts his foot in his mouth, speaks before he thinks, and Peter says, in the, you can read this in Matthew 17 later, oh, I'm paraphrasing, oh, I get it. You're on par with Moses and Elijah. We are impressed. So Peter suggests, why don't we build three tabernacles, the three of us, Matt, uh, Peter, James, and John, we'll build three places of worship, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then a cloud covers the whole place, scares the living daylights out of the three apostles, and a voice speaks from the cloud and says in a British accent, 
Just kidding. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. The cloud goes away. No Moses. The law is done. No Elijah. The Old Testament is has fulfilled in the one dude still there, Jesus. Don't build three tabernacles. There's only one. Weirdly, it's not a building. Your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning that's a bunch of tabernacles on Zoom and sitting in chairs and teaching this study. A dirty one, but a tabernacle nonetheless. The point is, um, Moses and Elijah were still Moses and Elijah. God in the New Testament and Old is called the God of, listen, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You go, wait, they're all dead. Exactly. He's still God, and they're still Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you get to heaven, you can interview Abraham, right? They'll be there. Um, and somehow I think we'll know who they are. But you know what? You're going to want to spend time with Christ, trust me. Um, at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, all the unbelievers are judged, and they're called the small and the great appear before God. Meaning what? They're still small and great, meaning some are still kings and some are still peasants. We retain our identity. Will you look like yourself? We don't know. Jesus could change his appearance and not be recognized and then be recognized. Still had the wounds, as we said. Um, there are people that say, I don't know that you could say this categorically, but there are people, because what if you die when you're 99 and you can barely walk? Am I going to be in that body again? Uh, the answer is, I can't say this categorically, but a lot of people believe you will be at the peak age of male and women, uh, male and female um, humanity. What is that? 25, 33, like Jesus? Like they're all going, yes, whatever, right? I can't imagine you're going to be a very old man or old woman in heaven. I can't sell that too hard, but um, the point is he's about to say that the resurrected body is so far superior you won't look back to with longing oh, it was so fun when i was in that that human body and i broke my leg and i broke my ankle and i broke my hand and i got sick you won't it's a whole different level of existence okay um by the way in the bible a fool is someone who excludes god from consideration thou fool um, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Um, let's see. Okay, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Zoom, doing good? All right. Um, let's see. How foolish what you sow doesn't come to life until it dies. Verse 37, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. If you want to grow wheat, you don't get a stalk of wheat and bury the stalk of wheat. You bury the seed. What comes up? A seed? No. A stalk that produces many seeds. Which is greater? 
Well, they're both important, but the seed has to be buried and die to produce this whole new life. Think how different a big, tall stalk of weed is, wheat is, weed, it's the old days coming back, wheat is compared to a seed, that's where I got the E-E-D, seed, okay. Um, it's vastly superior. You don't plant the body that will be, verse 37, but a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Verse 38, now he's going to sort of answer the how are the dead raised. But God, verse 38, gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body, right? Remember what did we say? Corn, apple, wheat, zucchini, they're all different. Are you aware of the, one of the evidences for, the, for creation is that there are no well, I'm getting ahead of myself because we're getting into the stars in a second and the moon, but no two people are exactly alike. Not even down to the DNA label, level, not even identical twins. Did you know that? It's an amazing thing. There's no two blades of grass that are identical. Flowers, chickens, dogs, even we're going to get into the planets, stars even, which all look alike at night. They're a little brighter. That one's a little dimmer, but those two seem exactly alike. It turns out the spectrum of light they put out, there's no two stars that are alike. God has an amazing array of possibilities for us when we rise. God gives it a body as he has determined, parentheses from me, and it's no sweat for God, right? He's not staying up at night wondering, how am I going to do that whole resurrection thing? And to each kind of seed, he gives its own, it gives its own body. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same. Men or humans have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds and fish, another. Okay, is that true? Yes. Biologically, molecularly, it's true. But you know it just from, you would never see a dog and go, is that a human? right? You need new glasses probably, right? Is that a bear or a human? A different kind of flesh, animals. Listen, I love animals. I know many of you have animals. Christians talk to me sometimes about, will I see my dog in heaven? Okay. First of all, mankind, men and women are made in the image of God. Cocker spaniels are not made in the image of God. Let's get that out of the way. I know you love your dog, your cat, your chicken, your parrot, whatever. They're not made in the image of God. Mankind is made in the image of God. We have an eternal spirit. Dogs, cats, chickens, mosquitoes don't have those things. However, I wouldn't put it past God if you loved your dog and he died, that when you go to heaven, I, it's not in the Bible, you know, the turn of the book of Cocker Spaniel chapter 9, it's not in there. But I'll tell you, I wouldn't put it past God to blow your mind and there's your dog again. Maybe not. Because this verse says there's all flesh isn't the same. People have one kind, animals another, birds, fish another. By the way, who created all of them? God. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. Okay, what's he saying? Just as a seed is just kind of, eh, 
versus a stalk of corn or that little apple seed turns into an apple tree. You got to admit, the tree is so much more grand and amazing and glory, uh, full of glory than a little seed is. In the same way, he's saying that same analogy, the body you had when you rise from the dead, you will be so far superior, it's not even worth describing the difference. Now he's going to even make it more amazing. And he says, verse 40, heavenly bodies, what does he mean? Well, he says it in the next verse, sun, moon, stars, planets, right? All that stuff. Okay. And earthly bodies. Now think about it. Our sun in this solar system is considered a dwarf, a small, did you know that? As suns go, it's a small one, kind of insignificant. Um, let's see. When you look up in the night sky, um, I recommend this, by the way. Um, we at our house, since the kids were little, Sherry and I do it by ourselves now. Um, in the summer, we lay outside on a lounge chair or a chair or on the lawn or wherever, turn off every light in the house and look at the stars. And if you live in a city, I apologize, you're not going to see much, right? Just too much other light, light pollution, they call it. Up here where we live, it's dark where we live. You see so many more stars. Do you understand what you're looking at? 99% of what you're looking at, those stars are, anybody know? They're suns, just like ours, right? Might they have planets spinning around them? I don't know, maybe. Occasionally, there's, um, there's an app I have on my phone. You can put it up there and, oh, there's, that's Mars and that's Venus and that's Jupiter. It's an amazing thing. It's free, in fact. Um, no one would compare the splendor of an earthly body, like a human being, no matter how perfectly buffed it was or beautiful the woman was or how perfect that little dog is compared to a star, a sun, right? Um, there's a splendor or glory of each, but the, he's saying they're vastly superior. Verse 41, the sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. Verse 41, did you see that? Um, let's see. Let me give you a picture of the galaxy very quickly while we have time, because we don't have much. How many stars can you see when you look up at the, at the sky, at the night sky? Remember, you're seeing a fraction of what's there, not only because of your own eyesight, um, but because there's stars underneath us, right? We're on a ball in space. Whoops, there goes my water. But how many um, stars are there just in our galaxy? One, approximately 100 billion stars in our galaxy. It's impressive. How many galaxies are there? 100 to 200 billion galaxies. It almost seems like a waste until you realize that God says the heavens declare, they shout out, they teach, they preach the glory of God. What if God did all that and we're the only living things in the whole universe so that we'd look up and go, whoever you are, you are so powerful and so majestic and so full of glory. Even when I wasn't a Christian, my friends and I would lay on the beach at night and do the same thing and look at the stars. And unbelievers, I have a friend who lives in Seattle, he's an atheist. You know what he and I talked about when we looked at the stars and we were 17? God. 
You can't help, you look, you can't help but think about God. So there's glory that varies from star to star and what have you. Um, God has limitless capacity. Um, don't think you're going to be your weak little self when you rise out of the dead, uh, rise from the dead. Stars have their own unique color. No star has the same. By the way, it's from temperature. Um, every sun is different. Every star is different. Every moon is different. Every flower is different. Blade of grass. Every person is different. So God can do anything, right? Uh, verse 42, and we're done. Let's see. I don't think we're that far, are we? Mm, yeah, we might be. We are. Verse 42, he ties it all together. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that's sown is perishable, able to be corrupted, able to decay, able to die, able to get sick ever since the Garden of Eden. It's perishable. It's small and insignificant like a seed that's perishable. It's raised imperishable, meaning what? Not able to decay, get sick die, feel pain. Huge difference. It's sown in dishonor. Why? Because there's nothing more uh, troubling about a dead body. Nothing. They start. Remember Jesus raises Lazarus and says, roll away the stone. And one of the sisters, I can't remember if it's Mary or Martha, says, you know, he's been in there four days. I love this. King James. By now, he stinketh. Don't you love that? I love that. She's right. Four days. Come on. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And he walks out. Mind-blowing. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Jesus had a glorified body. So will you. This is your future. It's sown in weakness. Human bodies are weak. We may think we're strong. You're a strong uh, until you get your last disease, sickness, or injury, right? No exception. That's how you die. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Next week, we'll talk about a natural body versus a spiritual body and how they're suited for the world that we live in. Natural bodies suited for this natural world. Spiritual bodies, I have a feeling, will be able to do things we can't even imagine because Jesus did the same. Shall we pray and get out of here? Father, we're thankful for this time we could spend in your word. We will rise one day, as will all who have ever believed in you, or will be changed in an instant if we're alive when your son returns. All of this we owe to you. It was your plan, Father, and we owe to your son. He executed the plan perfectly. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the horrible death we deserved, and he was raised from the dead to prove that his sacrifice was effective. We owe you everything. We owe you our whole lives, our future for sure. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds. May we see the world differently because of this and our future differently, even death differently, God. Thank you that the final enemy, death, is stingless now and unable to harm us. In fact, it's a glorious, glorious graduation. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds, God. May they change the way we live. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next week. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know if you're here. And those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. See you next time.